You're listening to the North Canton Chapel Podcast. Thank you for joining us today. The North Canton Chapel exists to make much of Jesus every day to everyone. It's our prayer that this podcast will equip you to do just that. We believe that there's nothing like the church united together in gospel community. We'd love if you'd stop in and say hello in person if you're in our neighborhood. Our gathering times are at 9 and 10.30 a.m. Thank you again for joining us today. Let's listen in. Well, good morning, good morning, good morning. There it is. Excellent. So cool. So it's funny how um, the Lord chooses to humble you. So last week, I don't know what you guys do on Sunday after church. Uh, we always talk kind of on the way home in the truck. And so last Sunday, um, Dave Short, our executive pastor, did a great job preaching on fasting. And um, I got Joseph and Karsten, our two oldest boys in the truck, on the way home. I said, hey, what did you, you know, what did you learn? What did God say to you? How did he speak to you? And so we were talking that through. And then one of my sons, who I'm not going to name, but his name starts with J, um, goes, <laughs> he goes, Dad, I just love it when Dave preaches. <laughs> And I go, yeah, I, I, I do too, you know, one of my favorite preachers. And then he goes, he's just easier to understand. <laughs> and I'm going, well, you know, not wrong. Um, it's just kind of funny how that works, you know. But we've been walking through these uh, ancient rhythms, these spiritual disciplines, these essentials of, of the Christian faith. Like, how do you walk with the Lord? How do you stay with God? Last week was fasting, and Dave did a great job walking us through a very practical theology of fasting. And this week is silence and solitude. And so in deference to my kids and to you, um, I'm not going to say anything for 38 minutes. No, just joking. <laughs> um, we will get to it. We're going to be in 1 Kings 19, and so if you brought a Bible, you can turn there, uh, flip there, scroll there. It'll be on the screens behind me. If you didn't bring one, that's okay. 1 Kings 19. Um, as you're getting there, let me tell you something that keeps me awake at night, something that uh, sometimes bothers me, and I wonder if it bothers you too. Um, sometimes I, I worry that we're sliding into a Christless Christianity. And explain what I mean by that. Um, I, think, I think most Christians or most people who say they're a Christian say, you know, we have a real strong practical use for Christ at the moment of salvation. Yeah, Christ saves me like he paid my debt. He gets me out of hell. He gets me into heaven. And that's awesome. Now what? And we live a, a life that's a little bit practical where we say like, well, I'm, I had use for Jesus back here, but like now that I'm saved, it's Bible study, it's community group, I'm just going to go busy doing things. If I had to ask you, and this is a little bit of a setup, I realize, but if I had to ask you like, what practical difference does relationship with Christ make in your life today? I'd love to hear your answer. Knowledge about is very different than relationship with, isn't it? Knowledge about is very different than relationship with. And so I'm a little worried sometimes, because I see it in my own self some days, is that we're headed into a Christless Christianity, which is not God's intention for us. I don't think the world needs to know about God. I think our, need, our world needs Christians who know God, know who he is and what he's like and talk about his character. So this is the fourth week of this six-week series called Ancient Rhythms. And today we're talking about silence and solitude. And the reason we're keying in on this a little bit is because I deeply believe that there are things that you can learn from God. You can only receive from him 
when you're silent, and when you're alone. So before we go any further, um, quick little definition of silence and solitude. I'll throw this up here. You note takers can jot it down, or if you're just thinking on it, you can just think about it. Choosing to withdraw from others so I can receive from God. Now, can you receive from God in a room like this? Absolutely you can. Can you receive from God in your community group? Absolutely you can. But there are some things that God needs to talk to us about by his spirit, through his word, that we can only achieve in silence and solitude. So here's where we're going today. We're going to look at a man standing at the edge of the desert and living at the edge of his sanity. (laughs) These last little bits about solitude, it's really hard. So what gets in our way? Why don't we practice silence and solitude? We're going to get to 1 Kings 19 in a second, but before we do, I do want to give us just five kind of enemies of silence and solitude in our world today. Um, The first one, I think, is probably the most easy, is silence and solitude just seem impractical. (laughs) Like, I know what goes on in your mind when you hear the word silence and solitude, and you hear the words of one of my favorite theologians, Steven Tyler, who said, dream on. And you're like, what is this about? What world are you living in? Silence and solitude? Give me some of that fantasy, right? That seems like something for like practices for pious monks, not rhythms for real people. Silence and solitude? I can get Bible and prayer and fasting. Not this one. And so this does seem impossible, impractical, and honestly, maybe a little irresponsible, right? That's one reason why this is hard for us. Second reason why it's hard to practice silence and solitude is we live and we love distraction. Our lives are so interruptible, aren't they? I remember answering machines. Raise your hand if you remember what an answering machine is, right? It's that little box by your phone with a little red light and you would come home when you were out, like with people. You'd come home and there's this little like, Somebody wants to talk to me, right? So you go over, you play the thing, right? And now, what do we do? All of us have this little rectangle in our pocket. Now we put our answering machines in our pockets, right? We are always reachable. Some of you are wearing your answering machines on your wrists, right? Now, here's the, here's the catch. We're going to go here. When you talk about technology, the, 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 the key is not to vilify the device. The key is to evaluate my heart. We're going to get to that in a minute. But what I'm concerned about, honestly, is that the pace of technology has outpaced our ability to learn how to use it well. Just according to our souls and the way that we are made. Technology sometimes just makes silence and solitude more difficult. And I'll push it further. I think we actually kind of like it because like, those little dopamine hits, they feel really good. You get a little ding on your phone? Oh, mm. Third, third reason why this is hard. We don't have much practice with it. (laughs) Is anybody here not busy? Is anybody here like, yeah, most of us are profoundly busy. We don't have much practice with silence and solitude. This is like going to a gym, targeting a specific muscle group, something I have a ton of experience with. You're like, yeah, we didn't need you to tell us that you don't go to the gym. Yeah, I, yeah, that's true. So, but I think these spiritual disciplines are like targeting a specific muscle group. It takes work. It takes time. You're not going to see results instantly. And because we don't have practice with silence and solitude, we're just not good at it. We just don't have a whole lot of practice with this. This is kind of foreign territory. Like, what am I supposed to do? Just like sit and stare at the wall? Like, what is silence and solitude? How do I do it? Fourth. 
We don't get much encouragement. We don't get much encouragement to do it. I heard a a principle a little while ago, it's like a leadership principle that I I think bears true. Um, It goes like this, you perpetuate what you celebrate. A culture will become what a culture rewards, right? You perpetuate what you celebrate. And so if you celebrate something, pretty soon, like that's gonna be the thing that your culture becomes about. So what does our culture celebrate? Not silence and solitude. We celebrate busyness, like 50-hour work weeks, right? That's how you show you're committed. And silence and solitude are like a step backwards, like it's a sign that something is wrong and you may be a little bit selfish. That's how our culture perceives silence and solitude. And so here's the gospel lens on this a little bit, is we start to actually think that God would relate to us in the same way, that we're only valuable to God by what we produce for him rather than just enjoying him. And so we don't have a lot of encouragement to do this. The last one, and this to me is the most personal and where we'll leave it before we get to the text, silence and solitude are really intimidating. Most of us feel a disconnect between our private selves and our, or our private selves and our public selves, right? I've heard it this way, that your reputation is the you that everybody sees, but integrity is who you are when no one's watching. And we know there's a disconnect, and we know that silence and solitude means I can't be the public, Brandon, I gotta be the private one. And most of us are scared about that. <laughs> most of us like this version of ourselves more than this version of ourselves. Because we instinctively know that silence and solitude will force us to see things about ourselves that we would rather avoid. So, in that space, we see our pride and our selfishness and our sin all in high def. And so distract me, please. Give me something. (laughs) That's why it's intimidating and that's why it's necessary. So those are the five enemies. Let's get to the text. Here's the situation. Um, Elijah is a prophet of God and he's just faced a showdown at Mount Carmel with 850 prophets of Baal. It was 850 to one. 850 of them and one Elijah, and they devise a contest. And so 850 prophets of Baal, a Mesopotamian god who demanded child sacrifice. Fascinating, he's also the god of fertility, supposedly. Super dark. 850, call on on Baal. They're like, Baal, Baal, answer us. Baal, answer us. Crickets, goose egg, nothing. And then Elijah calls on God, and God shows up in a way that's unavoidable and incredible. You can read about it, it's in 1 Kings. So then what happens though, Elijah is coming down from a literal mountaintop experience. This is the defining element of his ministry. How many of you know that life has a bit of an undertow to it? You have this big mountaintop experience and then there's something you're like, where did this come from? Elijah's undertow has a name. Her name is Jezebel. Jezebel's the queen. She hates God and she's mad because 800 of her spiritual advisors have just been proven wrong. She sets her sights on Elijah. She goes Al Capone on him and she goes, I want him dead. (laughs) And so Elijah, knowing she's serious, he runs for his life. And so at the start of 1 Kings 19, Elijah is scared out of his mind. He's dejected, he's depressed, he needs direction. He's alone facing the unknown with his servant behind him, a desert in front of him, death hanging over him. Here's Elijah, 1 Kings 19, verse three. He was afraid, he rose, he ran for his life. He came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and he left his servant there. So he's like, I'm just gonna leave you here. 
you don't even want to go where I'm going to go. And so with this death threat hanging over his head, what happens? Verse 4. Here's where things kind of move in the narrative a little bit. He himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, and he came and he sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, it's enough now, Lord. Take away my life, for I'm no better than my father's. And he laid down and slept under the broom tree. So Elijah heads into the desert by himself, alone and afraid, a broken man in a barren land, and he sort of collapses under this broom tree. You ever been under a broom tree? Like, not probably literally, but you ever been there? Here's what a broom tree looks like. They're weird-looking things. Broom trees, we don't have them around here. They got these long, slender branches, these small leaves. They don't really provide a lot of shelter. Now, does that look like a place that you want to go and clear your head? No. This is not the cave over at Gervasi. This guy is not getting a facial with oils. Like, he collapses under this thing that's basically a shrubbery. And he just sits there. And then he finally opens his mouth. And it's super important what he says because what he says is super honest. And let's remember, there's nobody around but God. And here's what he says in verse four again. He says, it is enough now, God. This half prayer, half complaint, enough. It's this really powerful Hebrew expression. It means give me a break, let up. I can't take it anymore. I want out. I'm out of gas, I'm out of steam, I just want to be done with this whole thing. I'm done, I'm spent. We're going to learn some Hebrew this morning. Those two words, enough now, I'm going to say it and then you can repeat it. It means rav atah, rav atah. Rav atah means I've got nothing left and I don't want to have anything left. I just kind of want to be done. Rav atah. Do you ever pray a rav atah kind of prayer? Rav atah is the place where You can't see past the blinding haze of your own emotions, and you don't really want to anymore. Whatever that thing is that you're facing, ravata, you want it to be over, but you can't imagine what it would feel like to be over because it's been a part of you for so long. Ravata, it's half confession, half prayer, all desperation. I just want out. Anybody ever prayed a ravata kind of prayer? I wonder. It's not a fun place to be. This is not have a cup of coffee and get over it. Friends don't work. Community doesn't work. Distraction doesn't work. But how many of you know that when nothing else works, that's when God starts to work? (laughs) Here's the first reason why silence and solitude are so important. Silence and solitude give us space to be honest with God. Rabata. They give us space to be honest with God. Enough now. Those words are like a splinter under Elijah's skin. And like anything, he wants to work it out. But he can't do it when he's at work. He can't do it when his servants are around. He needs to go and just be with the Lord and let the Lord in his sovereignty start to work that splinter out. Personally, I feel like sometimes God is waiting for my ravata moments. He's not surprised by them. In my experience, there's these times where, like the tender father that he is, he invites me, calls me, drawing me away, just so I can get this out honestly with him. And I'll bet a lot of you can identify with this, but here's the trick. I resist silence and solitude sometimes because I'm convinced that I can work out this deep set splinter on my own. 
I'm sure I'm the only one who struggles with self-sufficiency. <laughs> and God's going, hey, I, come on over here. <laughs> I got it. Ravata moments are important. Silence and solitude are important because we have a God who we can be honest with. And you need to know that. Here's how this relates to silence and solitude. I'm probably not alone in this. I only find myself praying Ravata prayers when I'm alone with God. I don't pray them, like real, the the gut-busting ones. You know which ones I'm talking about? I don't pray them when I'm around other people. I don't know why that is, but like group life, community, Sunday morning worship, this is all super important for the Christian life, but they can be your greatest deterrent because we can easily delude ourselves into thinking that we're being honest with God when all we're really doing is hiding in a group. And God says, come here, let's, let's have a Ravata moment. So how does God respond to Elijah's Ravata moment? Take a look in verse five. He lays down under a broom tree, <laughs> sleeps, Behold, an angel touched him and said, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and he drank and he lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. What journey? We'll find out. And he arose and he ate and he drank. And he went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb. We'll come back to that, the Mount of God. There's a lot here. Really quick, a second reason why silence and solitude is so important is silence and solitude are where we learn God's care for us. (laughs) It's where we learn God's care in a deep and personal way. Here's Elijah, deserted in a desert, a wasted life in a wasteland, and God shows up, albeit in a little bit distanced way. Now, here's what you gotta know about this desert that Elijah's bouncing around in. This is the same desert that Moses and God's people bounced around in for 40 years. And if you know anything about that part of biblical history, they're freaking out because they don't know how they're gonna eat. And what's God do? He shows up and he gives them food. (laughs) Something I absolutely love about God is he is so desperate to teach us something about himself, but he also knows that we're really thick-headed. I'm sure it's just me, you're fine. And so he just goes back over and over, he's like, I'm patient with you, I'm gonna teach you the same lesson as long as it takes, I'm gonna lead you through the same places, it's okay, I'm with you, I'm for you, I'm not gonna give up on you. And I don't mean to trivialize the text or minimize the depth of Elijah's Ravata moment, but, Sometimes the best thing that we can do for our souls is a good meal and a good nap. (laughs) It's interesting. If you fast forward to the New Testament, when Jesus talks about silence and solitude and learning God's care, there's this beautiful verse in Mark 6 where he tells the disciples, these guys who have been busting it, he stops everything, pulls the e-brake, and he goes, this is what Jesus says. He says, come away with me by yourselves and rest a while in a quiet place. So much in that. Come away with me. Come away just by, no, come away with me. (laughs) This is Jesus talking. He's I want to give you something in a quiet place that I can't get you in the circus. (laughs) Just for a little while, come away and be with me. 
Here's the question that I need to ask you this morning before we move any further in the text. Do you believe that God wants to be good to you to meet your needs? I didn't ask, can he? That's a different question. Because if he's God, he sure better be, right? He's able to. That's not the question. It's not his ability that I'm asking you to think about. I'm asking you to think about, do you believe that God is good enough to where he wants to meet with you and meet your needs? That is a huge question. Do you believe he wants to meet the need that you have? And don't you hear like the delicate flex of the gospel starting to peek around the edges of this narrative a little bit? God knows your needs better than you do. He knows that your greatest need is him. And in Christ, he has gone to great lengths to meet that need. This is the gospel under the broom tree, okay? You've got a problem that's bigger than you are, and it's not Jezebel at your back, probably. The problem that we all share is we have sin in our heart. We can't fix it on our own. I need something provided for me. I can't conjure up this thing. I need something done. And God, who wants to meet with me privately and speak with me personally, says, look, I want to be so good to you that I've provided my best for you, and his name is Christ alone. It isn't a coincidence that years later, how does Jesus describe himself? The bread of life? Living water? You think he's just saying the same thing? He's like, guys, we've been here for a thousand years. It's the same lesson over and over and over again. You have profound needs, and I'm right here. Please hear me. No matter where you are this morning, the God of the universe wants to show himself good to you and the chief demonstration of that goodness is the provision of perfect righteousness revealed in the cross of Christ. And this is just a foreshadowing. He's the bread of life that sustains. He's the living water that refreshes. He's the shelter under which we can hide. He is the perfect provision for your deepest need and all he wants is for you to receive his goodness. There's nothing harder than learning how to receive, though, because I kind of want to work for it. God says, no, here. Here's some water. Here's a cake. Just eat, drink, be refreshed. So that's reason number two, why silence and solitude are so important. It's where we learn God's care. So Elijah wanders in the desert for 40 days. Back to the text, verse nine. He came to a cave, and he lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? That's, how, that's the tone that I read in there. You're welcome to read whatever tone you like, but what are you doing here, he asked. He said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, they've thrown down your altars, they've killed your prophets with a sword, and I, even I only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. Then he said, go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountain and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire the sound of a low whisper. The Hebrew there is the sound of a thin silence. And when Elijah heard it, 
He wrapped his face in his cloak and he went out and he stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? Reason number three, silence and solitude are so important. Silence and solitude are where we learn God's power. This is a fantastic scene, isn't it? Like, it's so powerful, and it's so beautiful, and it's so personal. A couple of details here I want us to see, and then we'll push on. First, Elijah finds himself at Mount Horeb, and if you don't know your, your uh, Bible geography, that's okay. Here's all you need to know about Mount Horeb. Mount Horeb is another name for Mount Sinai. Kind of like North Canton is, used to be called New Berlin. Same place, just a little bit different name. Mount Sinai is the mountain where Moses met with God. This is where God wrote the Ten Commandments. This is where, who should I say sent me? I am that I am. This is the burning bush mountain. This is the God's place of self-disclosure. Second detail we gotta see from this scene. Don't you love how God asks Elijah a question? I love that. Like Elijah have his Ravata moment under the broom tree a month and a half earlier where he goes, enough God, 40 days go by and then what are you doing here, Elijah? I've said this before, but it bears repeating, I think. Um, it's a good Bible study tip. Whenever you're reading your Bible and you come across God asking a question, you need to know God never asks a question because he doesn't know the answer. <laughs> okay, you go back to the garden. Adam, where are you? He knows. Cain, where's your brother? He knows. Peter, do you love me? He knows. God asks a question because he wants the person he's asking to work up the courage to really say what's on their heart. This is God going, look, you had your moment under the broom tree and now you know that I care for you and you've learned this for 40 days. Can we just talk? <laughs> Third detail. Do you notice how, um, how self-centered Elijah's response seems? You notice how many times he says I in there? This is him going, do you want to know what I'm doing here? I'll tell you what I'm doing here. Here's what I'm doing. I've done great things for you, Lord, but they want me dead. It's a good reminder that you can want great things and still feel like a failure. I only had one option, running. A reminder that silence and solitude are not where we go to outrun our fears. They're actually where we go to face our fears. I love you, God. But they don't, and they want me dead. So what am I doing here? I'm running, and I'm scared, and I'm scared because I'm alone. It's a fascinating paradox. I don't know if you experience this or not. Sometimes God has to get us alone to remind us that we're not alone. And I don't know why that is, but solitude, for me, has this weirdly comforting, paradoxical reality of preparing me for community. Solitude and silence are not the opposite of community. I'm gonna talk about that in a minute. Fourth little detail, and to me this is the most interesting. Do you notice how through this whole scene at the mouth of the cave, God's power seems to diminish in ferocity? Okay, so first he asks a question. What are you doing here? And then Elijah answers. And then we get this fantastic, and probably for Elijah, terrifying series of events. Elijah goes to the front of the cave, right? And first there's this rock-splitting whirlwind. God has split seas before. He knows how to do that. But the Lord was not in the whirlwind. 
Then there's this earthquake. Again, God knows how to do that, and he's done that before. The Lord was not in the earthquake. Then the fire, been there, done that. The Lord was not in the fire. And then the text says, the sound of a thin silence. And when Elijah hears that, he says, verse 13, he says, he wraps his face in his cloak, went out, stood at the entrance of the cave. Now what are we supposed to do with all that? Here's my take on this. God is all powerful. (laughs) This is the creator God. As all powerful creator God, he is free to reveal himself however he darn well chooses to. (laughs) And it's often quieter than I expect. And my job is just to be ready. The whisper of God is no less powerful than the winds, the quakes, and the fires. It's just harder to hear because most of us just aren't ready to hear it yet. One step further, and then we're gonna make this practical. After the wind and the earthquake, the fire and the whisper, then what happens? Verse 14, what are you doing here? And he says, I've been jealous, and he gives the exact same speech over again. It's the exact same thing he just said. Verse 15, the Lord said to him, go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. So when you arrive, you're gonna anoint Haziel to be king over Syria. Jehu, son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, son of Shaphat, of Abel Maloah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. The one who escapes the sword of Haziel shall, shall Jehu put to death. One who escapes the sword of Jehu, Elisha shall put to death. Yet, I will leave 7,000 in Israel all the knees that have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. Quick summary, go back home, Elijah. Go back to where you came. You've needed this time. Glad we had our talk. But this time is over, and when you get home, I want you to do three things. Speaking of regional politics, I want you to anoint that guy. Speaking of king over my people, I want you to anoint that guy. Speaking of spiritual leadership and prophecy, I want you to anoint Elisha. His name sounds like yours. You'll get along great. And then just to set the record straight, I know you feel alone, but there are 7,000 true believers in Israel. You're not alone and you're not done. Fourth reason why we need silence and solitude in our life. Silence and solitude are where we see God's plan. As a pastor, one of the questions I get the most is how can I know God's will in X situation, right? How can I know what God wants me to do? My first answer, in case you ever ask me, is are you really quiet enough to hear what he's already said? Are you really quiet enough to hear what he's already said? There's a reason why God served Elijah first and then waited a month and a half and then spoke to him. Not pushing the text too far, but I don't think Elijah could have heard God's whisper coming down off the mountaintop at first. God wants to tell Elijah what's next, but he can't hear it in the whirlwind. How do you know? How do you know what God wants for you and your life. These last four weeks have been super incredibly intentionally laid out, and I wanna make sure you see them all in a row. Bible, week one, this is where we learn about God. Prayer, week two, this is where we commune with God. 
Fasting, this is where we learn dependence on God. Silence and solitude, this is where we become quiet before God. I mentioned a few minutes ago that I'm worried we're sliding into a Christless Christianity in our world. I am willing to bet that you just don't want to know about God. You actually want to know him. I hope. I hope that's true. You want to be able to tell your spouse and your kids and your friends and your neighbors, not just like some facts, but you want to be able to tell them who he is and what he's like and how he treats you and how good he is to you and how he refreshes you. How do you get there? Please don't neglect these things. All right, land the plane. What do we do? These weeks we've given you like, I don't know, like 10 tips, 10 tips, eight tips. I'm only gonna give you four because silence and solitude are really hard and these tips are a little bit longer. Here we go. First tip, find your broom tree. (laughs) Find your broom tree. What I mean is if you're gonna practice silence and solitude, you've gotta find a place. If you walk through the village of um, Epworth, England, any morning between 1700 and 1720 and you looked in the window of the parsonage Okay, the house that the pastor and his family lived in, in town. You looked in the window of the parsonage, you'd see something really strange. You'd see a young mom, she has 10 kids. A young mom, and she has her dress pulled up over her head at the kitchen table. Kind of weird. That young mom is under there, and she's praying. Her name is Susanna Wesley, and two of those 10 kids are John Wesley and Charles Wesley. John Wesley, profound theologian, founder of the Methodist movement. God used him in incredible ways. Charles Wesley wrote 6,000 hymns, also a minister, used by God in incredible ways. Here's the point. Susanna Wesley's looking for a little peace and quiet. She founds Jesus, and she has no idea what God's plan is on the outside of the apron. (laughs) That's her place. If you want to practice silence and solitude, you've got to find your broom tree. Movements start under the broom tree. If you want to find God in incredible ways, get alone with him. Your broom tree, again, is not a mountaintop retreat somewhere. It may be, but probably not. It's not a cabin in the woods. Maybe, probably not. You don't have to take a 40-day hike in the wilderness with just a jar of water and a cake. I would not recommend that, just to be clear. You just have to have a place where you can pray ravata kind of prayers, where you can be really open and honest with God and expect him to hear you. So that's number one. Tip number two, minimize distraction. I didn't say eliminate because I'm also a realist. (laughs) Minimize distraction. I kind of beat up on the phone thing a little bit ago, so let me kind of be vulnerable a little bit. Um, In preparation for today, I looked at my phone usage over the last week. If you're an iPhone user, you have the same information available to you. You ready for this? Last week, I picked up my phone. Anybody want to guess? How many times? 692 times I picked up my phone last week. For a daily average, this hurts to say, three hours and 46 minutes a day, responding to a grand total of 431 notifications, little red dots on my phone. And I'm thinking, I am so popular. (laughs) No, I'm not. I'm not popular. I'm just easily addicted. I'm like Pavlov's dog, man. You ring a bell and I'll start salivating. Like, give me this thing. Here's the point. Don't vilify the device. Evaluate your heart, right? Here's the gospel underneath this thing. 
God is softer and slower than my iPhone. God doesn't work in dopamine hits. He just doesn't work that way. And if I've been conditioned to relate to my world that way, I'm not gonna hear him his way. So a couple quick tips on this and then we'll move on. First, the phone is not the problem, I'm the problem. So before you pick it up, ask yourself, why am I picking this up? Is it because I'm bored? Is it because I'm looking for something? Do I want some kind of validation from this thing? Just a moment of honest questioning helps you out. Second little tip on this one, put it on do not disturb. It's actually a pretty good piece of like the newer stuff that's come out with phones over the last years. You have a do not disturb function. Put it on there. It's okay. Everyone is gonna be fine. Everyone's gonna be okay. You have to acknowledge 431 dings for me over a week. 431 of them. Every one of those puts me into reactive mode where I am responding and reacting to something else rather than being proactive and being in charge of my life. Third little tip, have a parking lot for your phone somewhere in your house, not by you. Make it harder to get to. I promise you, everyone's gonna be fine. It's gonna be okay. So minimize distraction. Third tip to, um, to practice silence and solitude. Practice three spaces. Okay, here's what I mean by that. Um, I find for me, and this is just me, I find that... Um, Silence and solitude kind of exists in three buckets. The first one I'd call minute retreats. Minute retreats, this is when a meeting ends early, mercifully, right? Or something happens where you've just got like five minutes or so in the day. These are really good for pressure release. They're not good for like rest or reset. Please don't take a nap in five minutes at work. That's not gonna go well for you. But it's really good for pressure release where you can just pray those Ravata kind of prayers. Five little, the problem is, if, if when, as soon as we get them, you do what I do, you fill them. <laughs> Don't. Practice minute retreats. The second space, not good for pressure release, is what I would just call like a one day. One day. Take a half day if you feel like you wanna be really efficient with it. Go for a hike, take a day off. Do you know Americans leave more vacation days on the table than any other world culture? We do. We get a lot of them, but we don't use them. We're afraid to. Here's the idea with one days. One days aren't good for pressure release. They're just good for rest. <laughs> Sleep in. Go out to eat. Go see a show. They're just good for doing something, not work-related. Then there's these bigger ones, okay? So you got the minute retreat, you got the one day, and then you got these like longer retreats. These ones are good for restoration. This is where God rebuilds what life just tears down and eats up. These can be a couple of days, they can be a week, they can be a few months, depending upon how tightly you're wound. Personally for me, most of you know, this time last year I was on a three-month sabbatical. It took me six weeks to come back to center. That's how tightly I was wound. I woke up, true story, six weeks in, I woke up and I go, there's just one day where I went, I actually feel rested. It took me six weeks to just unwind. That's a confession, that's not a good thing. So try and find those things in some way in your life, in your rhythm. They're not always possible, but there's something that you can work for. All right, last one. Consider community. <laughs> Here's what I mean by this. Like, you're, hey, wait, we were talking about silence and solitude. How do these other people get here? <laughs> Here's how I would define community, just in case you're curious. Community is pursuing God's best for others with others. Pursuing God's best for others with others. 
You heard Cassidy say earlier something that I think that's worth celebrating here at North Canton Chapel is that, just candidly, our biggest area of growth is young families. I love that. That's incredible. Because just like Cassidy said, like we are discipling future world changers, that is an awesome reality. Here's the challenge. If there's any group that can't do silence and solitude or struggles to or feels guilty about it or can't afford it, it's young families. Moms and dads, single parents, biological kids, foster kids. It's really hard to do silence and solitude. So here's the challenge as a church. Do you wanna be a church that's really well connected? Do you wanna be a church that really, really lives and does this intergenerational thing well that we're trying to do here? For those of you that are older, look down and go, gosh, how can I help those young families? I know, when Mandy and I were young and our kids, well, younger, and our kids were much younger, we had a family at our church. They were 11 years older than we were. He flew for work, so he racked up a bunch of airline miles and hotel points and dinner points, and he just said, look, can we take the boys just for the evening and you and Mandy go out to dinner? I'll never forget it. That was like 20 years ago. It was like the biggest game changer for us because we were just exhausted, and we just needed just a break to go be with each other and to be with the Lord just for an evening. Doesn't take much. So here's the thing, and band, you guys can come on back out. We're gonna close in a song like we normally do, and we're gonna talk about the value of Christ. We're gonna talk about how good he is. Here's the thing, God wants to meet with you. God loves you. He wants to meet with you. He wants to hear from you. You can say whatever you want under that broom tree. He's not gonna care. He's heard it all before. (laughs) Some of it he wrote down in the book of Psalms. He's heard everything and he knows everything and he just wants you to sit with them. Would you be willing to find a place this week or maybe plan on something to meet him in silence and in solitude so that you can experience his goodness to you? Let me pray. Lord, when you think about your goodness, it's impossible to overstate how good you are. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for Jesus, the perfect demonstration of your goodness. That sinners like us, lost, afraid, alone, could have a home and protection and a secure future. Father, we love you and we say thank you for the gospel. In Christ's name, everybody said, amen. Thank you for listening to this episode of the North Canton Chapel Podcast. If this ministry has blessed you in any way, please share this episode with your friends or spread the word on social media. If you subscribe and leave a five-star review, it goes a long way to helping us make much of Jesus every day to everyone who hears these podcast episodes. You can also donate to this ministry at nchapel.com forward slash give. Thanks again for joining us. May you go out into your places and spaces, making much of Jesus every day to everyone.